0: Hey everybody, welcome back to this moment. On Tuesday, March 30th, President Biden announced new actions to address the ongoing violence against Asian Americans. Some of these new actions include the Justice Department tracking these hate crimes and expanding its outreach to community organizations, but also the FBI is gonna begin holding training sessions with local law enforcement. Now these recent events really weighed heavily on many of us And Marcus and I talked about it, so I decided to reach out to my dear, dear friend, Trisha Wong. Trisha has researched the social evolution of the Chinese internet. She's written about the elastic self, which is an emergent form of interaction in a virtual world, to take us through the history of anti-Asian racism, help us outline some of the actions we can take to combat it, and basically... Tell us a bit about what this past year has been like for herself, her family, and her community. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. You know, what were your immediate thoughts to when you found out about the recent shootings in Atlanta?
2: Of course this happened. Like, why, what would we expect after a year of pinning this pandemic on Asians, on especially Chinese people? And what do you expect after four years of a president that empowered white supremacists, everyone feeling so emboldened um, after the storming of the Capitol? I immediately went into planning mode because I know what happens, you know, when this can, when this kind of stuff happens, I've been seeing it happen, which is like media want to pin this as a black versus Asian thing and to make it even more divisive. And I was just like, we have to make sure that we're ahead of the misinfo, any kind of memes, negative, you know, racist memes or efforts um, to make. Asian people more fearful of black people, even though the, the act was committed by a white person, at least in Atlanta, but it's just so complicated. And I was just like, there's just going to be a release of stuff. And some it's just like we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to be one step ahead in terms of organizing, and we have to speak out that this is unacceptable. I just immediately thought about the killing of Vincent Chen in just De- in Detroit in 1982, where um two white people. Um, killed him. Um, it was someone who used a bat and smashed his brain, you know, never came back to his four days before his wedding was at a bachelor. He was, it was his bachelor party. He was in Detroit and the, the two men got off with $3,000 fine and, and no jail sentence, you know? Um, I I think about all the women, Black women who were killed in Boston and when Barbara Smith um, and the co-founders of the Kambahee River Collective came together. I just think like, Across all communities, whether it's Black, black, or Muslim, or Asian, Asian Pacific Islander, there's always there's at some point there's a set of murders that happen. It always is some kind of taking of life that mobilizes people to come together and to organize. And so, while this incident is is horrific, I just know that I've seen I'm seeing my community. I'm seeing us. We're speaking up more, being more vocal. So this is, this is a turning point, and this is a turning point. Another, it's it's another ongoing history of. Coalition building and solidarity with groups who have been on more on the of the violent, more of the um, you know in terms of murders on the murderous end of of the white supremacist experience over the last few decades, um, especially Muslim and Black communities. I think it's a time for us to continue organizing with them. So, yeah, and building more solidarity. So I went into action planning mode. I didn't really grieve as much, um, but that's just my personality. As I grieve. You know, in a different way and probably will come later.
0: Tricia, Stop AAPI, Hate, Asian American Pacific Islanders, recently released a report that there have been 3,800 documented. These are only the documented hate crimes against uh, Asians from the start of the pandemic until February 28th, 2021. Almost 70% of these 3,800 documented hate crimes were reported by women. So I'd like to, you know, for you personally, what have these past 12 months been like?
2: Look, my my past 12 months have been very sheltered. You know, I have been working from home. I'm not an essential worker, so I'm mainly in my apartment. So I'm not having to risk my life out there every day. And getting to get sick, you know, to work and, and and having to travel on the subway. So, my life is 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 limited in that way. But also, I live in an incredibly diverse neighborhood. I don't live in a concentrated um, neighborhood of like you know primarily Asians. I think in our community, at least in Brooklyn, this is a very diverse and and strong community, and I feel very safe in this area. Um, and. You know, it's it's been but what I have been fearful of is for like my family who lives in mm-hmm. Oakland and my exactly. grandmother, who I say she can't go on walks alone anymore. She's 92 years old and she's been she used to walk you know a couple <laughs> miles a day mm-hmm. on her own. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's not happening. No. Um, trying to convince, you know, my mother just to like, you know, just to be more careful. But it's been it's been a hard one because I also am trying to work on my family to make sure that it doesn't go in the area of, of misinfo um, or, or fall into any of, um, racist racism. Cause you know, a lot of what's happened in Oakland has, um, the, you know, all the victims are Asians in, in Chinatown. And it just so happens the community next to Chinatown is a black community. And a lot of, of the people who have been, you know, harassing or harming Asian people have been black in that area. And, I just have to really work on my family to make sure that whatever they say, whatever happens, that they don't fall into or lean into any of the racist kind of misinfo that's in fake news that's spreading in like, you know, they're, they're chat groups. I have to be like, no, these, these, these are the incidents. And this is like, this is, this is not at all black people are like this. And, um, this is, that's what I work on, like on a very personal, um, level for me, but I have not been on the experiencing end of it. Um, but I am, I'm always extra careful
0: though. Yeah, I mean, when I, that's a
2: Brooklyn I in me, you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> when I, um, again, March 19th, when I found out about the shooting, it, it, uh, another thought that I had was just that. Yeah, this makes total sense. I mean, a pillar of white supremacist oppressive tactics is divide and conquer, always has been. Exactly. It's a, you know, colonial, exactly. it's a pillar of colonial strategizing to uh oppress and conquer uh nations and peoples. The divisiveness between minority groups in the United States has such an old history. Uh, you know, it was they The Irish were pitted against the Italians, the Irish and the Italians against the blacks and and, uh, you know, uh, or against the Jewish community or against the Asian community. It seems to seem to me, again, that this is just a continuation of like a very kind of American story.
2: Yeah. And I would say that they're victims of not only white supremacy, but white supremacy is caught up is is truly, um, I think, It's hard to disnain white supremacy from Mm. capitalism Mm. um, at all costs. You know, I think that's why, like, looking at intersectionality is very important, which is that none of these issues are just um, that white supremacy and capitalism are caught up together because it's an investment in a system. Mm. Um, It's it's and it's totalizing, you know, and so. What happened there is a ongoing issue with that um, in America, at least with, with Asians, is that we are pitted at, pitted against you by seeing, by propped up as a model minority mm-hmm. and white people analyze and say, hey, these are the minority, like why are you black people, Latinos? Why can't you be hardworking like Asians? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and that is a really problematic myth because then it creates this divisive, it, it creates further divides in the community. Mm. And also there are policies that are set in place that make it easier for Asians to get loans, you know, where the black people can't have access to. And mm-hmm. they've been here. They've been born here. Mm-hmm. And so there it's there. The The, the tensions are real, um, but you can't it's not you have to look at it in terms of also capitalism and how it's all tied together. Um, so, yeah, no, it's part of a, a long system. And that's why in America, we always have to have the other. Mm. Um, And so that, I think that's, that's how, that's part of what American history is about, is understanding how the other Mm. and the dangerous other and the fear of the other constantly moves. And you have to have, you have to frame that as in order to like, and so I think what's exciting is that like, how do we frame um, a country where it's not always having to be based on um demonizing another where we can just be mm, proud mm, of mm. the celebration of the joy mm. and that's why i think like cultures that bring us together like hip hop like music mm. they celebrate community and storytelling it's it's inclusive enough that like hip hop doesn't say you know, yes, it was started by black, Black and Latino, in Black and Latino communities, but it's inclusive enough to really welcome um, and have space for everyone. But we need, we need, that's why we need to invest in culture, because that's the kind of stuff that brings people together. And it allows us to imagine a new story, a new way of conceptualizing what it means to, you know, be an American or to be in America, a residence of this place. And it's not based on this constant other, which is based on this idea, at least for Asians, it's based on this idea of the yellow peril, right, that was started in Europe. Um, to the, about the it started in Europe. I mean, white supremacy, I, so and capitalism, bad, yeah. well, It all well, goes we know back that to a Europe. Lot,
0: that all <laughs> evil, not not all, but but so many of the modern evils started in Europe. We know that colonialism, uh, capitalism. But I didn't know that the yellow peril expression or way of thinking stemmed from Europe. I thought that was wholly American.
2: No, it was a Russian sociologist who used who created the term, and then like the Germans like snapped it up. Um, and what it was, it was used to justify uh, the invasions, of, invasion of Asia, and they compared, you know, Asians to um, to being. Like apes, um, and um, that they were so sexual that they would take over in population. So you know, Germans came up with some crazy shit like that. Nazi that Nazism was not born out of nowhere with Hitler. There's a long precedence. It's infrastructural, and um, there was a whole design of a system that, of like of Germany going to other European countries saying. We need to band together because the yellow peril is coming. So we need to. He there was you know he this the person who promoted it in Germany came with the whole idea of um, polygamy so that men could have as much sex as they want and have as many babies to counter the um Asian to counter the yellow peril that was coming. So yeah, it's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> it's all and. and a lot of European nations bought into it. And you think about the connection to, you know, England, to to the British Empire invading um, China and um, just feeding the country opium. And like it, it's it all is mapped. It all comes together. It also with, connects with, with, with the t- yellow peril.
0: Tricia, as you know, I mean, you've spent a lot of to- uh, time in Sweden. I know uh, I think it's fair to say a part of you love Sweden. Is that that's not exaggerating. Oh, yeah. You love Sweden. Oh, yeah. Maybe specifically oh, no, I, Malmo. Want, I Maybe want the specifically country. Specifically to... Malmo. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna
2: say there's a specific part of the country I love, which
0: is Skåne. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and which makes I'm me a as Skona a Sconian. Makes me very happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but
2: Um I love no, I love that part of Sweden.
0: What you're saying about the yellow peril and its roots in Germany makes me instantly think of uh replacement theory which is so kind of which has trickled into mainstream media you can hear it echoed by uh, not only alt-right but conservative politicians in sweden a lot of journalists too and that's this um i i think that also has its roots kind of in german nazism of um of basically that hordes of uneducated uh poor criminal savage and today it's it's it, that's code for muslims are going to uh invade uh, you know just flood into sweden and uh with the help of of course jews and leftists uh destroy uh swedishness and swedish whiteness and so forth so it's funny or not funny but it's it's really fascinating how how these things how these things go in cycles, right? Like that the yellow apparel came before, and now you have replacement mm-hmm. theory, and now the culprit, at least in the Nordic countries, is not Asians; it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's Arabs, Muslims uh, across the board, more or less.
2: Um, right. It's not Asians right now until like because. Of the idea that we are the honorary whites, you know, that is the term that is that is a concept that is like you're the cause again of the model minority myth until it turns, you know, because that's the thing with white supremacy is that you just it always needs somebody. It needs a group of people and it's all based it needs on its fear.
0: Scapegoats, yeah.
2: Yeah. But also it's the same thing underlying it. There's also, it's also a class thing because there's a fear of loss of life, of livelihood. And so you have to blame it on somebody, you know, in all of the Asian issues around, um, anti-Asian, anti-Asian API issues here in the U.S., a lot of that has always been like Asians coming in and taking jobs. Same thing with Mexicans or with Latinos, you know, and with Black people being like, oh, they're going to just like, it's always like these economic, underlying this replacement theory is the scarcity, the idea of scarcity, and that these other people are taking away our our beautiful way of life, and they don't understand our values. And so it's, it's, it's horrific because it, what it does is that it's, it creates this binary, um, and it's all about sorting people into boxes. Um, and I think that a lot of what perpetuates it was different now than it was like back then in like the, let's say late 1800s when yellow peril was created is that we have tech platforms. Now we have algorithms. So the issue is not, I wanna be careful, I don't wanna say the problem is social media in itself. The problem is the way that we now spend a, a mediate a lot of our lives online and how we get information is through tech platforms, is through social media. And it just so happens that the way that current social media is designed is that these algorithms, all they're doing is pattern matching that by serving you information. You click on one thing, it, isn't, it doesn't look at meaning behind it. All the algorithm is saying is you clicked on this one thing, it automatically says, um, we will serve you more of the same thing. And that's, I think, what is also feeding this um, of what's happened over the last, especially the last four years, is that um, the Internet is great and that you can find all this information, but it makes everything more visible Everything more legible. And so it means that white supremacists can more easily connect with other white supremacists also. And Misinfo can also find its way to the people who are likely to click on it. Um, and even people who don't feel, um, who never, who weren't like, com- like my mother, who is not, um, I She's would not say. A, a, um,
0: heavily into social media, I, I, I assume.
2: But she gets the information. She does. But she yeah. gets it because of the Because it because becomes it all, the word on the streets. That's how pervasive yeah. it, is.
0: it becomes public opinion. Exactly. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall that the first AI produced tweet was a very racist oh, tweet. Oh, was anyway, it? wasn't it? I, I may be wrong about that. Oh, I, I
2: mean, I do know about the 20... I mean, there is a... um that There's Microsoft's AI chatbot called Tay that was on Twitter. I don't know if it was the first AI written tweet, but it is a chatbot... By Microsoft, and it um, it was it became racist because of the data that it was trained on on twitter so i don 't know if that 's the one you 're referring to, but that was a, a really big issue and it was um, and it just goes to show that like you can 't just launch technology into the wild without thinking about the data that 's trained on especially the eminent,
0: especially not when it 's modeled after us and our we 're far from uh, we 've far from yeah. moved past these issues of course we 're going to uh insert that into the tech that we build uh even as even exactly. if it's, even if it carries the kind of surname intelligence but okay Patricia when you're in New York City which is I dare say the most multicultural uh city in the world and also making it just the only city where hip-hop could be born is also where it was born it's New York City Brooklyn where you live uh but your family lives in Oakland. And as you just said, you know, you tend to worry more for them than for yourself. How do you feel, you know, how does it affect you when you, you know, get off the plane in when you're in Northern California? Do you Are you much more vigilant and more uh, are you more scared when you're there than when you're in Brooklyn? Um,
2: I'm more I am always look I'm I'm more worried whenever there's not as many people so this mm-hmm. is why I love density mm-hmm. I love being in New York City because there's always people around mm-hmm. um I actually became you know more worried over the last decade as my neighborhood became more gentrified because in here in Brooklyn we have a whole street culture where you're always out on the streets and mm-hmm. people there's always eyes on the streets and people looking out for mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. And in the summer it's just the best part of Brooklyn is going around and you see people barbecuing out front and mm-hmm. there was just I could walk home late at night no matter what there's always someone on the stoop, you know, mm. to look out for me. And as the neighborhood has gentrified, as more white people have moved in, um, is that that culture has slowly disappeared. And white people don't say hi to each other as much. I would say white and Asians, um, they just don't understand the culture of of New York City, which so is mm. that you got to look out for each other. Mm. You know that mm. that closeness you get to know your comes neighbors from. And
0: you talk to your neighbors exactly because
2: yeah. because you can't rely on the cops. You know New York City that you don't call the you try not to call the cops. You yeah. know. So, I have been more worried here over the last 10 years as um, density has disappeared, but also as the culture has changed and people spend more time indoors. So, in the same way that I would be more worried, I'd be worried in the Oakland for the same reasons. It's mm-hmm. just that there's just not as many people on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I'm always aware, though, this is the Brooklyn night, and me is mm-hmm. that I am ready to bash someone's head in at any <laughs> fucking moment.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I will. That's why I feel very attitude. safe when I walk with you. <laughs> Yeah, because I know you have eyes. I'm, I'm
2: always ready. Yeah,
0: that's a, so I feel I always feel very safe when walking with you. Um, and also, Tricia, this is another argument for why we have to talk more about your move to Sweden, because if you think there's less stoop culture in Brooklyn as it's gentrifying, uh, come and hang out in Stockholm for a week or two. <laughs> there is zero stoop. I, I don't want to. <laughs> is this is why I'm stoop. not moving or to Stockholm. Mamo, or Malmo, or Malmo, or Malmo. There's very little stoop culture. I'm moving to Milan where... No,
2: mm-hmm. I'm going to or where, I, where I, is the most diverse part of Scandinavia.
0: Yeah, there's definitely the, the highest chance of you, that having that sense of community and neighbors actually saying hi to each other. But I'd say uh, this, it's not a lot of it here in the Nordic region.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
0: I'd specifically like to ask you of your personal experiences of racism, even before the pandemic. The past, admi- uh, the past president was being pretty explicitly anti-Asian in a lot of ways, you know, and in a lot of his mm-hmm. language. How uh, how was it for you growing up? What were some of the experiences you had with this growing up?
2: Well, I think I think look, I had a really interesting childhood in that for the first nine years of my life, I was raised in the Bay Area and we um, lived in San Jose and I grew up in a really diverse community. Um, I, like everybody was, was there in San Jose, mm. all immigrant groups. And all of a sudden at the age of nine years old, um, overnight, um, we moved, my mother was like, okay, we're going to move into the suburbs. We moved three hours, two hours North into uh, a town called Roseville. Mm. And there was a newly created suburb And I remember the first day there, we went into a grocery store and this white child and a white mother were in, she was, um, they were in a cart Mm -hmm. and they looked over at us and the daughter, the little girl started screaming and um, they just like had never seen anyone looking, look Mm -hmm. like, look like Mm -hmm. us before, Mm -hmm. you know, and they screamed and they just like ran away. And then I started, and then I was like, what was that all about? And what I realized was that we were the first Chinese family that I know of, you know, Mm. there may have been others, Mm -hmm. but that was my experience is that there was, I couldn't see anyone else looking like me. I went into school. I remember the next week and it was a total shift. People started calling me chink and Chinese and a communist and go Mm -hmm. back to China. And I was nine years old. I didn't know what this was. I was Mm -hmm. like, what is a chink? Like, Mm -hmm. what is it? Like, I knew I was Chinese, but it was like, why are they calling me Chinese in a derogatory way? Mm -hmm. Why are they calling me a communist? Mm -hmm. And then it was, and I didn't put it together until like later on in life. I think like as a teenager that was like, oh, Tiananmen Square just happened Mm -hmm. 1989. Mm -hmm. Um, And all people saw in the news were the tanks, um, you know, uh, and the violence and the, the murders of Chinese citizens. Mm. And it was it was really interesting because that was, my experience was just, people are very surprised that like I grew up around such extreme racism. So that was just like the tip of it. It was like, mm. most of my experience was every day, was like, I got into fights all the time. I think I, I went to school in a very racist administration. I was outspoken. Mm. And I wrote about racism and they didn't like it. And I remember um, just even like driving in our car. I still to this day have a fear of large trucks. And um, there was, I think, Nazis. (laughs) Like they were men with like bald, and they had like swastika signs in their arms Mm. and their trucks. And they would just like scream at my mother and I, um, just, you know, telling us to go back to China. This was like a regular experience. Our house would get egged all the time. Mm. Um, So... I think like, and I think a lot of people are surprised. People are like, what? That's California. I'm like, okay, California is incredibly segregated. Mm, um, like mm. you said, New York City is the place that is most mixed, mm. but it's not like that in the rest of the United States. And um, that our, the place I grew up in was highly affluent, highly Republican. Not that there necessarily has to be a correlation between being Republican and being racist, but mm. it just so happens that it was... Um, that that was what it was like in my neighborhood in my and my and it was people are just like shocked they're like i i don't understand that like how and i have like scars on my knees from like fights you know Mm. um from people putting gum in my hair um and just constantly being now i know the word is being bullied Mm. but i didn't know um Mm. that was i was just like this is you know my brother went through it too it wasn't just me um so that that transition hmm. to me as like an adult, like the experiences are pretty crazy too, because of how Asian women are hyper eroticized and sexualized. Hmm. Is um, I you know I move in circles that are pretty senior. Um, but at conferences, I have a very different experience. Um, I think like a lot of, I mean, women are always sexualized. But I think there's Asian women are hyper hyper. You know, mm. I mean, Black women are sexualized too. Like all, it's like all women of color are always extra mm. seen as objects. Mm-hmm. But I think Asian American women go through a particular um, experience that is, I think, even more extreme, as we have seen. Um, like in these shootings, like mm-hmm. I, I think like really well-meaning people would be like, "Oh, how do you feel about the shootings?" I'd be like, "Okay, here's how I feel," and they'd be like, "Well, so do you think he really did it because he was racist or because he's like has a real sex um, addiction and mm-hmm. because he really was trying to? He thought they were sex workers." So I'm like. Why are you asking that question in the first place? The fact that you're asking that question goes to show how messed up your thinking is. Because mm. it doesn't even matter if they were sex workers or not, you know. Mm. But but because um, Asian women are hypersexualized, I think people really want to like, so were they sex workers or not? And it's like, mm. who gives a shit?
0: <laughs> that becomes just a, a way of, of victim blaming, anyway. So would it be more exactly. okay if they were? I mean. What is the, what's the implication there that it would be more okay if they were sex workers? Also, I mean, the fact that the police chief said that this, uh, that the shooter, the murderer was having a bad day. I mean, that of course speaks maybe more to the murderers, the murderers race than the crime itself. Right. If he wasn't white, they wouldn't talk about it that way.
2: And on the police chief on, on Facebook, they have found like photos of him wearing a shirt about saying how the COVID, COVID is from China. So... Yeah, it just goes to show it's just more stories about mm. how how people white people are protected, mm. you know, when they commit acts of white supremacy.
0: And Trisha, you mentioned before that trying to stem or counter the flow of fake news and racist memes and so forth. How do you realistically go go about doing that? I, I just feel personally in my life there is just I, I many times feel like there's there's almost no point to trying to get at public opinion when it sways in these fake newsy directions because uh, it, it, f- fake news is synthetic truth that people digest so much easier than looking into the complexities of actual truth. How, how do you go about that in your kind of, in your work, in your daily life?
2: I mean, it's definitely not impossible to counter because you, but it, it's, these systems are not dependent on just one individual. Mm. Like, so we have to acknowledge that these are infrastructural issues with algorithms and with people who, and there's a whole financial system that benefits from these algorithms. This is mm. all; these these are all based on advertising money. It all it mm. always comes uh-huh. back to there's there's money involved Absolutely. at the end of the day yeah. for these kind of models of because cl- you they they need you to keep clicking. Mm. I personally counter it by acknowledging um, what power I have by my platform and just always making sure that. I post information that I would want to read. And then when I hear it personally from people I know, like, am I, let's say, just like my friends or family, you just talk to them about it. Mm. But I would say like fake news is almost not like the, my biggest issue. My biggest issue right now that we have to deal with is that beliefs or illusions of safety for the kind of solutions that Asians would call for. So there are legitimate calls, supposedly, for more cops and more patrolling mm-hmm. of um. Chinatown or places to have more massage parlors. Mm -hmm. And what we know historically, and to this day with evidence of not just how cops treat Asians, but in particular how cops treat all minority groups and especially black people, is that cops are not to be trusted. Mm. I'm not talking about individual cops. I'm talking about as an institution, we do not need more policing because the evidence goes to show that that they are the danger. You know, we have people dying because of cops, increased policing in our neighborhoods. You know what's holding the community together right now is what I look at is the, um, what I point to is like, look at the amazing solidarity that's coming together from mm. like, you know, we have... Peter Kerr, who's a black, you know, Brooklynite who created the the um, group Street Writers New York City, and he's he, it was his call that's led to like thousands of people signing up to escort Asian Pacific Islander people walking home from the subway or to the subway or to work. You know, you have the massage outreach parlor, um, massage parlor outreach project in Seattle that was, um, for, you know, formed to protect massage parlors. Um, you have all this mutual aid group. There was like a Latino, um, like a young twenty six year old Latino person and. Wow. Oakland. His name is um, Jacob Azevedo, who created this um, or called Compassion um, in Oakland, and mm-hmm. where it's also just escorting Asian a- API people, you know, to work just in their everyday lives. Mm. Um, and I just think it's like efforts like these um, that we that are truly community based. That to goes to show that like we have we know what to do. We have solutions. This is a moment of coming together. Mm. Um, that we don't need like. More cops. This is like mm. this is the thing that we really need to focus on right now mm. um, that we need to come together over I mean, is that community based activism knows how to resolve these things that are culturally specific.
0: What needs to be done to encor- encourage more crossover in activism between different groups? And it's not, you know, just between blacks and Asians or, you know, but in class geography, but notably between minority groups that sometimes feel far from each other or don't identify as Mm -hmm. the same.
2: I think the way we address that is that you have to understand your history. Mm. That's like not the most popular answer. But I think one is to really understand how these things are not new and they come. And when you look at your history, you understand that what it's linked to and how there's a pattern, which is that imperialism, colonialism, white supremacy are all linked together in an effort to divide so that um, we can be pitted against each other. Mm. The second thing I think is to understand that this is not a binary. Um, And I think that's really important um, because around the world, I know people were shocked. Like people are always shocked when I say Asia, this is not new. Mm. So I think Mm. it's like, and people are like, what? Asian people experience racism? It's like, Everybody experiences mm. racism, racism except, you know, in yeah. a white supremacist yeah. world. World, yeah. Um, and I think the 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 more, but I think a more nuanced answer is to go back to what Barbara Smith, who is one of the co-founders of the Combahee River Collective, came up with the term identity politics. And the word identity politics is so misunderstood right now. It is
0: so, Please break it so down I just for go us. Back that to, needs. Oh my God. For our Swedish listeners, that definitely we need a needs whole to be broken on down. That.
2: We're not going to get deep. I think you need to do a whole episode with Hmm. Barbara Smith. But really, the the term that when she created that, you know, when they, the whole entire collective created that, it was just like, all they were saying is that, like, we need as Black feminists, as Black women, Black queer women, need to be able to, everybody, but not just them, but everybody needs to be able to determine their own political future. Because your livelihood is at risk because when you can't determine and affect political change, you don't get represented. And if you're not seen as human, you don't have an identity. I, you know, this is this is just period uh-huh. is that like a lot of people were not even recognized as a group. Uh-huh. And that's all they meant. Um, and what she, and the reason, and her, the work that, the way they went about doing their work was incredibly intersectional. And in that she was saying, as a queer black feminist, my issues are not just because I am black. It's because I'm also a woman. And it's also because of my sexuality that you can't just isolate the oppression works. across. It doesn't Mm. just operate in one category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's across gender, race and sexuality and, uh, you know, across a myriad of other issues. And so I think it's like, that's why I mean by like, get over binaries. If you really like all of us need to do that. And I have to continue Mm. in my effort in that to constantly see that it is that all these things do come together and you can't reduce it. So that's why I don't like it when people are like, well, if you could just reduce it to one thing, what is it? And it's like, mm. no, that's not how mm. it works. We're in a complex system. And so I look to activists like Barbara Smith. I look to elders like her and I look to elders like Grace Lee Boggs who died at 100 years old, mm. who was working, you know, a long working um, with one that it was one of the loudest civil rights organizers, mm. you know, organizing, um, In Detroit, when all the factories closed down, all of a sudden, black and white people lost their jobs overnight. Entire towns were decimated. Um, So I think there's like a lot of good activists to look at and role models, Mm. and I think we need to celebrate them because I think like especially a lot of young organizers and myself, I remind myself like we are not this is not new. We have elders who came before us and people who have been resolving, who've been figuring this out, Mm. and so we can't um, reinvent. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, but also. We have all these new ways of organizing. They're so much faster. We should be able to use technology and use social media. But we have to meet the community where it's at. And I think that's why looking at local groups, like looking at what this one group in Chinatown is doing, for, or in New York City, it's called Red Canary Song. They organized after um, a woman died um, because police were like chasing her and trying to arrest her for, for being possibly a sex worker. Hmm. And these kind of moments, you have local groups coming together. And I think it's like, we need to all commit to these kind of local efforts that are hyper-local because that's where change is made. Mm. You know, this is not about some like broad advocacy. Like we need advocacy and we need policy change, but also the work happens on a local level of mm. getting to know people in your neighborhood, saying hello to them and mm. figuring out what needs attention. So mm. I would say like, everybody should figure out what's happening in your neighborhood. And sometimes those issues may not be Asian related. Like right now I'm not working just on a Asian issue. You know, my, my time is right now as a co-founder of a nonprofit during COVID that protects communities most impacted. I, my work reaches my primarily right now, indigenous black and Latino communities, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you know, it just so happens that's where I'm, I'm organizing right now.
0: Mm. Yeah. But I love that perspective because I can myself say that I can sometimes be hesitant to address issues because you know, I tend to look at, it, uh, look at it from a too big a picture, from too far away. And what can one person do against all that? But what you're saying is reverse that and look at what you can do on your street, on your block, in your community, amongst the people that you meet and address the issues, needs that are going on there. But also, and maybe more importantly, what I'm hearing you say is basically reaching out to the people in your community that you don't normally speak to or that you don't know who they are. And let me say this, Trisha also, because I'm constantly in translation between uh, the United States and Sweden. And in Sweden, as you know, and we've spoken about a lot, uh, grassroots community organizing is not very common. And it's something that I think some are struggling to catch up and learn. Uh, Others are not aware that this is even missing from our lives. And Yet and still to me, I see it as, you know, um, you know, the pandemic breaks out and there's not even an effort in the building where I live, where there are a lot of, I'd say, 85 percent of the people that live are senior citizens and there's not even a collective effort to uh, help our neighbors buy groceries if, you know, if they're... Why if, would they
2: need to? The state can
0: do it. Exactly. And that, that's, <laughs> and that, of course, that's the answer to why we've kind of forgotten this, because, of course, there was community <laughs> organi- organizing in Sweden before social democracy, but after social democracy, doing such an efficient <laughs> job at kind of lifting the 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 broad yeah. uh, public as you know, the, the public health and and eradicating poverty at such a broad and, and efficient level, then organic communities became, I guess, less important. But now as social democracy is being uh, dismantled and most of it being dismantled, uh, the need for organic community building and the possibility to do that with the knowledge and the motivation to do that when crises happen uh, is very obvious to me. So mm-hmm. again, I just wanted to say that your advice really, uh, this very, very inspiring advice, especially sitting here in Sweden.
2: Yeah. And I, I'm like tactically speaking, there's like, there's a whole effort called, you know, call on me, not the cops that came out of 18 million rising mm-hmm. out of, um, Florida. And I, I love that effort where, um, it's just like there's you just talk to people and be like, hey, if you have an issue, just like calling me, not the cops. Mm, mm. Um, and but when we're talking about like, you know, what can one do? I also think people need to be prepared to take trainings to speak up. Um, what I love is that the Center for Anti-Violence has a whole training on how to be a good bystander and how to move from being a bystander to an upstander. Mm, um, mm. There's Instagram account called, you know, at I Hollow Back, and I'll
0: send you all these links. I love that from bystander to upstander. Yeah,
2: um, where they have a training on the five Ds of how to be a good upstander, you know, distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct. Um, And this started out as an effort to end gender-based harassment, but it's now moved on to any forms of harassment. This is something that I think, like, especially Swedish people, but I think everyone should learn is how do you, what do you do in moments where um, you not, it's not relying on you as an individual, But if you see something, how do you become a voice to try and intervene? You know, and I like that because like the first one of distract is just asking the perpetrator who is doing the harassment, just be like to distract them. Be like, hey, can you tell me what time it is? The the thing is not to be their first action is don't like, you know, not to be like some righteous, self-righteous person coming in. You just want to first distract. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the second thing, de-delegate of just like asking someone, telling someone like, hey, this person is being harassed. Can you help this person? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's, I love that because it's not, the solution is not just dependent on you, but it's saying, hey, as a community, as everyone, if you care about this, take a training on how to be an upstander so Mm -hmm. that when it happens and something happens in front of you, you know how to deal with it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that like that's why in the U.S., I really love the trainings that like Colin Kaepernick has been doing with mm. his organization, of Know Your Rights. It's the same effort of like, mm. you need to know your rights so that when you get stopped or you watch someone being stopped or illegally being searched um, and being profiled, you know how to document that situation in the way that will create the least amount of harm to our, all parties. Because mm. without that kind of training with or without that kind of awareness, me being like this I'm more of a firecracker. I just want to be like, what the fuck? But like, I have learned that that can create more trouble, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Mm -hmm. especially in a system where a cop is already aggravating and freaking out. Like, you have to approach that with great sensitivity so Mm. you don't escalate.
0: This should be taught in schools. It's as active measures to counter bullying, which goes on in many schools, Uh, um, you know, I'm sure all across the world.
2: The energy of what's coming out of there's like one phrase to sum up what's Mm. happening Out because of the murder is, is like speaking, speak up. Mm-hmm. Like we cannot stay silent. And mm. I think that's why the upstander and these kind of trainings are so important. Mm. Um, is that you have to speak up and there's so much work you can do. Like, don't be silent. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that like I've always taken into my life is like speak up for all forms of injustice mm. because that mm. that is that that's like what else can you do? Like, this is the best thing we could be doing as human beings mm. is to speak up when you see because you would want someone to do that for you, Mm. right? Mm. And so speak up and like, look out for like just care, operate from a place of care. Like, you know, I love that. I would love to know in the next time we talk that you've knocked on some doors in your building Mm. to check on Mm. the elderly people and just be like, hey, like call on me. By the way, if you need help, Mm. if anything happens, I'm in this building, Mm. you know? I, this I, is my number. Like, I'm in this apartment I this did number. <laughs> about
0: a month into the pandemic when <laughs> oh, I when I noticed you. when I noticed that that was not going on and and realized That's that, incredible. yeah, well, it's not going on. Then that needs to happen, you know. But uh, Sweden's very much a mind your own business uh, culture. Um, but, you know, I have a pretty good relationship with a lot of my neighbors. But yet and still, it's, it's kind of a uh, social taboo to, you know. It's like nobody has ever knocked on my door to ask for a, uh, uh, you know, like an egg or a cup of sugar or some milk or. But I know lots of people in my building must have run out of these things. Um, I've actually I I knocked once and asked for uh, some milk and I got it. That was fine. You know, the sweetest thing to do then would be like if somebody if like if my neighbor knocked on my door and I gave them like a cup of milk they would come they'd like within if not within hours but like the next day it would have to happen they would have to buy me new milk to replace the milk
2: we, it'd be cool funny to do a documentary of just like uh, a, a training of swedes yeah. of some basic american <laughs> and just, i think i like my looking, mind looking looking each other in the eye
0: i definitely think you should move to sweden we need we need this kind of uh you know just clear true concrete and honest advice on how to be citizens upstanding neighbors and uh fellow humans and i love that about you too trisha you always have like tangible advice on like well do this take these steps or if you have you tried looking at it this way tools you have tools and you're very good at sharing the tools so i really appreciate that trisha
2: Convince the government to give me citizenship. I'll be there.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know about citizenship, but you could definitely come over here and live. Tricia, thank you so much for coming on This Moment and uh, inspiring me, as you always do.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you all, all our listeners. Follow us on Instagram at This Moment Podcast. Our email is thismomentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you again next week. So until then, peace out.
1: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues